A spectator subscription is now better value than ever before. As a new subscriber joining today, you'll pay just £1 a week for unlimited online and app access in your first year. If you want the magazine delivered to your door on top of that, it's only £1 a week extra. And your first month is free without obligation. To subscribe today, go to spectator.co.uk forward slash unlimited. Hello and welcome to a special episode of Spectator Radio. I'm Kate Andrews, the Spectator's Economics Editor, and in this episode you're going to hear our live discussion on a greener future for the North. It was held in Westminster last week and kindly sponsored by Drax. On the panel, I was joined by Claire Hardboard from Drax, Thomas Pope from the Institute of Government, Valentin Quinio from the Centre for Cities, and Jake Berry MP, who's also chairman of the Northern Research Group. We hope you enjoy the episode. Good morning. Thank you so much for coming to Westminster this morning, especially if you've traveled far to join us. Uh, My name is Kate Andrews. I'm the economics editor at The Spectator. Uh, And this morning we're going to be discussing how we secure a greener future for the North. Uh, A panel this morning only made possible by the support of Drax. So thank you very much. Um, Energy has been, is the topic at the moment um, for obvious reasons as the world reels from Russia's invasion of Ukraine and and what the knock-on effect that that has had on oil and gas prices around the world. But it was arguably one of the most important topics before the invasion as well with so much discussion around the net zero targets and how the UK was going to, practically speaking, uh, move uh, into the next uh, generation of, of energy technology and development and how it wanted to and how it was going to lead the world in doing so. And it's raised a lot of questions, primarily around how you balance the regeneration and the investment that this government has committed to leveling up in the North, uh, and whether or not that is compatible with a decarbonization agenda. Many people say it is. Uh, people also ask uh, what it's going to do to prices, especially for consumers um, and, and those on lower incomes as these transitions come in. So. How do we ensure that the North is going to benefit from a greener, more prosperous future, as hopefully the rest of the UK will as well? And how can industry in particular play a role in that? Um, To discuss some very big topics, uh, The Spectator has assembled a fantastic panel for you this morning. We have the Right Honourable Jake Barry MP, uh, who's also chair of the Northern Research Group. We have Thomas Pope, Deputy Chief Economist at the Institute for government. We have Valentin Quinio, Senior Analyst for the Center of Cities, and Claire Hardboard, Group Director of Corporate Affairs for Drax. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to ask each of them in that order to give us three to five minutes of their opening remarks. Um, I'm going to abuse my position as chair to ask a few questions, but I want to go to the audience as quickly as possible because it's always your questions that lead to the best discussions. Um, We'll chat for about an hour, wrap up, and there will be tea and coffee afterwards and more opportunity to continue the discussion. So on that note, Jake, please kick us off. Oh, thank thank you, Kate. Uh, To answer the exam question very directly, I think it is absolutely compatible uh, with with a growing economy to have a a green economy. And one of the things we did recently at our Northern Research Group conference is we set out a series of policies that we believe can turn the UK, and particularly the North, and those areas that need levelling up from Cornwall to the Midlands and everywhere else, into a green superpower 
economy that can be internationally dominant in this field. So before I go on and set out two of those policies very briefly, which I hope can stimulate debate, there will be lots of other things that people would like to see done, I just want to talk about the opportunity for the area that I represent and the Northern Research Group MPs collectively, over 50 of us, represent. And that's what we call the green industrial revolution, the reindustrialization of the North and Midlands on the way to becoming this green superpower economy. By 2050, there'll be 1.2 million new jobs created, um, according to research by PwC. And, but what does that really look like? I don't know what 1.2 million jobs really looks like. It's a bit, is that 10 jobs per town or whatever it is? So I thought I'd just focus on two cohorts. So a, a child born this morning in the northeast, when they hit the age of 20, probably out there looking for the first jobs, there will be 421,000 new jobs available in the northeast uh, by the time they're 20. And a child born in the northwest, where my children are born and brought up, what are they born? They were born in London, but they're being brought up in the northwest. There'll be 760,000 new jobs in what we'd call green-collar jobs. So the prize is absolutely huge, and it's intrinsically linked to levelling up these communities, because, of course, the best way of levelling up any community, I believe, as a Conservative, is to create stable, long-term, highly-paid technical jobs, and the Green Industrial Revolution absolutely will provide these in spades. So my sort of final comments, I'll just talk about some of the, the two top-line recommendations that the Northern Research Group has made and we think are really important and we're working with the government to stimulate uh, uh, the debate in this area, but actually trying to move the government as well. First of all, anyone who runs or owns a business in this room or even works in a business will know the most important thing for any business is its people. Uh, if you go and talk to businesses across the North of England, as I do regularly, one of the greatest challenges they have is around skills. That's why the Northern Research Group has proposed something we call Voxbridge, which is looking at two brand new vocational academic institutions in the north of England to challenge the dominance of Oxford and Cambridge, but to do it on the vocational footing. And through that, bring in a twin-tracked education system that values academic and vocational skills to the same level. It's exactly what you see in Germany. In fact, it's been credited with levelling up East Germany after the war came down and has created one of the most resilient and fairest and equal economies in the world. And we believe that should be coupled with a pledge by the government uh, that their top three priorities are vocation, vocation, vocation. Thank you, Kirsty Wall, for that one. Um, the pledge by the government to send 50% of our young people into a high-level vocational qualification. It's currently 21%, and we think that's achievable in a decade. And it would mirror, to some extent, the pledge made by Sir Tony that 50% of all young people should go to university. Of course, like all Labour pledges, it's not one we've ever has ever been met. And, in addition, it's left us at the bottom of the G7 in terms of productivity, and, uh, you know, university is basically, in some cases, a, a Ponzi scheme to con young people out of cash uh, because they're not doing useful jobs necessarily at the end of it or jobs that even require them to go to university. So that's the first thing we're calling for. And the second thing, very briefly, is we believe that freedom should be given to areas, conservative freedoms, the freedom and the ability to lower taxes, specifically around corporation tax. So if you were to take uh, Lancashire, it has the third second, I think, now biggest aerospace cluster in the world. 
Uh, you could say the same up in the Tees Valley, which has the most developed hydrogen economy in the United Kingdom. You could say the same thing in Leeds, which is the second largest financial services economy outside London. And our view is bring down taxes to level up. And we think that's a very conservative thing to do. We think it should be sector specific and it should drive the economy in certain areas where areas and government believe it's socially useful and we think this could be used to great effect uh, in terms of uh, developing the green industrial revolution across the north. So they're the two things we're calling for. The last one is let's make this country a bit more Canary North than Canary Wharf, but it's not about dragging anywhere down. It's about giving freedoms to areas to succeed and to deliver this hugely important agenda to all of our communities. Thank you, Kate. Thank you, Jake. Uh, over to Tom. Thanks very much, Kate, and thanks for inviting me today. So I'm going to talk a bit about um, the sort of two agendas here that we're talking about, net zero and, and levelling up. And I think it's interesting that there are lots of links and similarities between them. So they're arguably the government's two biggest agendas. They all, they're also about the government sort of setting a direction and setting out sort of some incentives, but really they do rely on the private sector to do most of the legwork. If you look at the kind of OBR and uh, CCC uh, climate change committee projections, most of the investment to get us to net zero is going to be done by the private sector. And similarly, if you're going to achieve those big economic changes on, say, productivity, that's not just going to be achieved by what the government does, but really by what, um, what the private sector does and you know, where the private sector chooses to locate, where it chooses to invest. It's therefore a, a bit of a problem, I think, and relates to this the question that we're talking about today, that the agendas are kind of operating more or less on separate tracks. It's notable how little net zero was mentioned in the levelling up white paper, for example. So to get to the question of today, what will net zero, getting to net zero, mean? Well, as Jake mentioned, there are sort of opportunities there. There are going to be new jobs created, new technologies, the opportunity for sort of new highly productive industries. There are lots of different places that those industries could end up. There's also going to be a challenge in that there'll be some new jobs, but there'll also be other industries that are going to be, um, will, will decline a little, or at least will have to adapt in order to be consistent with net zero, and particularly some, some heavy industry there. And how does that interact with levelling up? Well, in principle, you could, you could see some problems here, that some of the, more of the heavy industry, what the Resolution Foundation recently called brown jobs, are more likely to be located in, in the North and, and the Midlands. Um, and if you look at some of the some higher tech sectors, sort of more, more green jobs, actually you can see um, they're disproportionately based in the South um, and London, notwithstanding the examples that Jake mentioned of, of clusters elsewhere. Now, there are lots of um, these industries that are still emerging and will still emerge. There are going to be new clusters. And I think in a way it's sort of up, to, up for grabs as to where they're going to end up. And there's a world in which... These two agendas align very well, and there are lots of highly productive new industries that are going in the places that, that need to be levelled up, that are fitting in the north. I think the point I would make is that we shouldn't assume that's just going to happen naturally. Um, it's not inevitable that um, the north is going to get um, you know, the new um, carbon capture technology, for example, and the government therefore needs to be strategic and deliberate about how it goes about that. So, so what should that mean policy-wise? Well, I think the point... Jake mentions on, on skills is really crucial here. Um, green jobs in general are going to require a different set of skills, and we know that lots of the differences in productivity across the country are determined by differences in skills. So a focus on, on skills and having a, 
a net zero skills strategy, which actually is a, still a gap in that agenda, is going to be really important and making sure that that's, that's place-based as well. But it's not just skills, it's also about R&D policy. We know that the government wants to spread R&D more across the country. How can, that do that how can they do that strategically on um, sort of net zero linked to R&D, which will be quite important? How can it focus on those emerging clusters that are starting to... Um, sort of develop in, in the north and actually promote those and encourage those. And I think the last thing I'd say here is that I've, I've talked sort of in general about what government should do, but I think a really important question here is what is the right level of government to do things and pull these levers? The questions about, you know, which areas have got perhaps industries that might decline or will transition and therefore we need new skills, that's quite a local question. It's probably the type of question that will be better delivered at sort of the, the mayor or combined authority level than it will from the centre. So I think there's a really important question there about where are we putting the, the relevant policy levers to allow for sort of the right type of net zero transition, a transition that will um, align with the, with the levelling up agenda rather than conflict with it. Thank you so much, Tom. Valentin. Thank you. Sharing this, sharing this mic. Um, so yes, so I work at the at the centre for cities. So perhaps um, unsurprisingly, I'm going to talk about the role that cities um, have to play in the net zero um, transition. I think there's loads of different ways of unpacking this. The first is to think of it as, in a way, the role that local government has to play, as opposed to you know the role that national government has to play. And I think we can maybe discuss that later on um, in the conversation. Um, but there's also an interesting uh, distinction here to be made in terms of the, the fact that the net zero transition is a national strategy, but there's a really clear place angle to it. And in thinking about it and looking at the role that place um, has to play is quite useful here. And so one way of, of looking at this is to look at the breakdown or the split between cities and rural areas. What we know looking at the data is that uh, cities have a much lower carbon footprint than the rest of the country. Um, and that's because of the benefits that density, which is quite unique to cities uh, built environment, brings um, in terms of, uh, of the lifestyles we, we have and the fact that they enable low carbon lifestyles, for instance, because density means that uh, you know, distance is shorter, so journeys can be made um, by either active travel uh, or you know, cycling, walking. Um, and density also means that uh, public transport is more viable. So there's a really clear difference here in terms of the carbon footprint of someone living in a city versus the rest of the country. Um, that doesn't mean that um, you know that doesn't mean that we should um, leave rural areas behind. But what it means is that with greater potential comes greater responsibility. Um, and so cities in the north, but also in the rest of the country, are going to have to lead the transition because they have the potential to do so and to cut carbon footprint um, at a faster pace. Um, and then the other way of unpacking this is to look at the differences between cities um, in the country. Um, if you look at carbon footprint uh, and how it varies between places, between cities in the country, there's quite a lot of variation between, uh, between places. Um, so if you look, for instance, at you know, London or cities in the, mostly in the greater southeast, uh, tend to have quite a lower carbon footprint than in other places in, in the north. And the different levers that places have to pull vary between places. So in a number of cities in the north, for instance, uh, most of the issue is around transport and around the quality of their housing stock, which means that domestic emissions are much higher than elsewhere. Um, so what that means, and I think you know, that's quite important in terms of the resources that have to go 
for different cities uh, to help them transition to net zero. Um, and I think there's a really clear um, important point <coughs> to make here that we'll need to ensure that this transition um, happens in a, in a fair way and we need to give more resources to place that, places that need it the most. Um, if you look, for instance, at um, the, the quality of the housing stock across different cities, of the 10 places with the highest um, share of housing with the, the least energy efficient um, housing, uh, I think seven of them are in the north. So you know, that essentially tells us that we need to deploy more resources and funding to help these places retrofit and to help them cut their carbon emissions when it comes to, to housing. Um, so we need to make sure that we enable the fair transition. Looking at this in terms of jobs as well is also quite useful. Um, when you look at uh, different cities and the share of jobs that are at risk of being disrupted or at risk of uh, disappearing because of the net zero transition, um, the majority of them are in the north as well. So if you look at Aberdeen, for instance, I think a third of jobs are in, um, broadly related to the oil and gas industry. And we need to make sure that these places have the resources to bounce back towards a fair transition. So there's um, essentially looking at this from a place angle and the differences of the geography of the net zero transition is, is quite a helpful angle, um, I think, to understand how we, not just how we transition, but how we transition in a fair way. Thank you, Valentine. And Claire? Thank you. And uh, it's a great privilege to be here today and representing the private sector. I'm, I'm Claire from Drax. Uh, you may know us on the A1, that huge power station, keeping the lights on and very importantly, keeping on the lights on with renewable energy. We're the biggest renewable generator in the UK and we're generating on biomass. So not Russian gas. We're keeping the northern lights on today. Uh, with our biomass and that came about with this incredible journey that we've been on of decarbonizing the biggest coal-fired power station in Western Europe to biomass and that was the most extraordinary innovative uh, technological development that, that we've ever done and lots of people said we couldn't do it but you try saying that to our Yorkshire engineers and the person who led that transformation started as an apprentice and he's worked all his way up learning on the job learning and working with universities and developing new technologies, and we're just about to do the next really exciting development in the north, carbon capture with biomass, or it's called BEX. And this is a fantastic opportunity to further reduce emissions. We've already reduced our emissions by 90%, and it's an opportunity to reduce our emissions even further in an area in the north where there is a lot of carbon emissions. So we have an opportunity not only to uh, help the country meet their net zero ambitions, but also to really uh, include huge new opportunities for jobs and skills. And we're working with universities to develop this technology. I know the University of Manchester is in the room. We work with Leeds. We work with uh, London universities, working together with our northern partners, the net zero, with Teesside, and with the East Coast Cluster. We are very much working together in the north to protect jobs, build jobs, address net zero, level up the north, and with the security of supply, accelerate our investment in renewable technology and make the UK much more independent in renewable energy for the future. So projects like ours are really, really important uh, for the future of the north and levelling up. And we are looking forward to get on with this project. We've been waiting for many years to get this off the ground. We've been waiting for government policy and some policy frameworks. We are ready to go. We have got millions waiting for our international investors to go. We're shovel ready. We're ready to go with our partners. And what we need now 
is government policy to accelerate this, give us the right frameworks, and we will go and protect the North, increase the North, and give us a world-class innovative technology that no one else in the world can do at the industrial scale. And if we don't get on and do it, we will lose our competitive advantage in the international arena. So this is a fantastic opportunity for the North to power through, give new jobs, address net zero, level up the North, and put us on an international world scale. So we stand ready to invest and look forward to working with government, looking forward to working with our partners in the North, and looking forward to working with our academic partners. Really, let's do this new technology and let's get on with it. Thank you very much, Claire. Um, so I'm going to jump in with a few questions and then be thinking of yours because um, I want to come to the audience as quickly as possible. Uh, Claire, I'm just going to follow up on those comments um, because if you look at the net zero plans, essentially what the government has laid out is that for every pound of taxpayer money it puts in, it needs to get three pounds of private sector investment in order to meet its agenda. In those very clear-cut numbers and terms, is Drax and do you think other industry ready to put in that kind of investment? Absolutely. We've published our plans. We've got a five billion, not million, billion pound investment plan for renewable technologies. The BEX project is two billion. We stand ready to invest and we are already working with our partners. You know, we've got Equinor, we've got BP, we've got lots and lots of other partners. We're, we're ready to go. Mm. Jake, um, I think that one of the... the, the difficult uh, elements of all this is that if we were starting from scratch, things might look very different. But at the moment, um, there is a heavy concentration of heavy industry in the north. And when you break it down here, some numbers in front of me, the northwest has 41% of high emitting jobs compared to London or the southeast, which has 23% or 34% respectively. You mentioned some very compelling figures about the new jobs. Uh, that may be created in the north uh, over the next few decades. But the tough reality is that a lot of those high-emitting jobs are also going to disappear. So it's not just that we're adding jobs. We, you know, the, the, the net number of jobs could potentially be in crisis. How do, we, how do we make up for that? Well, look, those jobs are going to disappear anyway. That's just a reality, uh, particularly you know, if you look at things like the cost of energy. I think the investment Claire and Drax are making is, is to some extent, the, the answer to that. And if we can create affordable green energy, and particularly if you look at things like uh, the long-term projections for energy prices, particularly for electricity, there's going to be significant long-term falls in prices. It will, electrons will become more like data in terms of technology. Will, you know, data is becoming increasingly cheaper. Um, so, both in terms of protecting those industries uh, and also ensuring that they have a future, then accelerating this agenda is, is the answer. Um, look, you know, my view is that, you know, we're not starting off with a blank piece of paper, but my view generally is that this age of ink, slight sort of incremental government where we tweak this and tweak that is over. And I think we should proudly say it's over. And I think the mandate the Prime Minister has is, you know, as that levelling up agenda, I think is a, a mandate to do exciting things and drive forward the economies in the North. And that's why we believe uh, in the Northern Research Group that devolution is key, enable local decision makers to have power over tax, to be able to guide their own economy, and actually then local decisions can drive that economy of the future. And to be clear, uh, Yorkshire, which is the second best place to live after Lancashire, um, Yorkshire has more people living in it than Scotland, yet Scotland has the power and the freedom to vary taxes. Now that is, you know, on the face of it, unfair, 
And I think that, you know, this in, in a Devo Max government that we've called for, I think Nicola Sturgeon's making similar claims for Devo Max Scotland as well, uh, but in a Devo Max, or independent in her case, a Devo Max government, we want to some extent sort of rip up the status quo and create a new political environment where local decision makers <coughs> drive forward the economy. Valentin, in what's been published so far, the 10-point plan, um, the energy white paper, do you see this as ripping off the status quo or do you see this as tinkering with the current structures in place? Um, I think there's been a real acceleration in the understanding of the problem and the sort of need for a clear strategy in the past two years and I think the the, the fact that the UK hosted the COP26 uh, definitely um, sort of helped drive, you know, in, in government this this need for a clear, uh, clear strategy. But I think in terms of the understanding between the interaction, you know, between levelling up and net zero, uh, there's still a bit more work to do. Like it was um, mentioned earlier, there was not a clear um, sort of mention of, of net zero in the levelling up strategy. So I think there's still a bit more work to do in terms of understanding what that means for, for, for the future. Um, just bouncing back on the, on the point made earlier about, about jobs, um, I, I think it's quite useful here to also think about this in terms of, in terms of good jobs. Um, I, I often take the example of, of Nissan um, and the, the car manufacturer. Um, we know that there's a huge potential for, for them to switch towards uh, electric cars, and that has a really clear uh, job creation potential. But if you look at the current situation, um, so the, the assembling plant is in Sunderland, but the design and the headquarters are in the greater southeast. And so the high-skilled jobs, at least for now, are still, um, you know, there's still a spatial disparity in terms of how the jobs, even within an industry, are located. And I think that's something for us to keep in mind for, for the future as well. Hmm. Tom, what do you see as the uh, structural barriers that still um, are, are very much upright between the government's agenda uh, and, and uh, what needs to be done? Yeah. It I mean, I'm, part of the challenge, certainly with, with net zero, is that the, the gains, the new jobs and so on, will come mostly down the line and they require mm. initial investment, which, you know, is, you know, investment tends to pay off in the future, but it costs you more now. Mm. Right? And I think, you know, the cost of living crisis really um, sort of butts up against this and that actually higher gas prices, um, need for energy security and so on, actually strengthens the case for trying to net zero should get to net zero at the same time as making it much harder to, to do things now. And I think, um, so I think that that's, you know, that's something where government can act, um, but it's going to be harder for the private sector to act in that um, scenario. I think the other barriers are more um, about sort of structurally the, the way government works. You know, Jake talked about the sort of tendency for, for incremental government, and he's very optimistic that the era of incremental government is over and we're going to do big bang things and, the, the, and the, these are agendas that require big big bang changes but you know, big big bang changes tend to either cost a lot of money or create losers at the same time as they generate winners both of which politically are very difficult things to do i mean in, in terms of i suppose provided some problems there in terms of how you actually get around that. I think actually further devolution, that's probably a, a, a common theme across, actually further devolution is part of the way that you can sort of get through some of those political barriers. If generally, decisions tend to be, become a bit less political as they get to more local levels. You see certainly the, the metro mayors and have, have been able to work in a very consensual way in areas, in a way that you know, Westminster politics can be, um, you know, can be uh, more confrontational. Um, 
And yeah, I think that that's probably the main way. And the, the other way is, is the government being upfront with people about, you know, there are these challenges, there are these jobs that are going to go, but there is this opportunity as well. And again, I think that that's a difficult um, conversation to have, but it's a necessary one. And so the Climate Change Committee said, said this morning that you know, current plans are not, are not sufficient. Um, something that other people have said as well. I think that the government can kind of build on those, on those warnings and make a positive case for change out mm. of that. Uh, Tom mentioned the cost of living crisis. Absolutely vital that we address this because it's, it's great to talk about lofty ambitions, but um, a lot of people are wondering at the moment how they're going to pay their next bill and they're not so interested in, in the investment money perhaps going to what's going to happen in 10 years' time but would like to see the support now. I mean, Jake, you know, let's, let's be frank about this. The, the phrase net zero has dropped out of the, the Prime Minister's speeches quite recently. It has not been referenced nearly as much as it was towards the end of last year around COP26. Is there acknowledgement in government that it's going to be very difficult to press forward with this agenda despite the fact that it may well help level up the North as long as the cost of living crisis continues to worsen? So I think the challenge with speeches by the Prime Minister and the Chancellor and other senior people in the government, they deal with the now. And, you know, net zero is a very long-term ambition, but I do applaud uh, the government's uh, approach and the long-term approach they're taking, which will sit across both governments and parliaments. That I, you know, I, I think the way you deal with a lot of this cost of living crisis is to accelerate this agenda mm -hmm. and, uh, you know, accelerate people driving around in the Nissan Leaf fine vehicle made in Sunderland, um, rather than in their diesel Land Rover Defender, it's a fine vehicle made at Solihull. Um, no, I, I own a Defender, not a Nissan Leaf, though. Um, so, yeah, so I just, think, I, I just think the government does have to get back on this. But, I, look, it's the government's job to set a broad framework. They have done that, and it's also their job to make sure that our population, in terms of skills, aligns with that, and they need to do that by doing this twin-tracked education system with vocational skills, given the same uh, sort of uh, prominence as academic skills. Frankly, it's the idea, it's the, it's the job of business to go on and implement it. This idea that, you know, the government will invest to create a, a you know, net zero is complete enough to hogwash, frankly. I mean, uh, you know, Drax has got two, so it's five million pounds investment plans. Some of it will be government, but it's a partnership. Greater Manchester on its own has attracted six billion pounds. So to put that in context, not necessarily on the green agenda, but it is uh, greening housing. To put that in context, that's bigger than the government's entire levelling up uh, mm. fund and budget. Greater Manchester, that's for the whole country, the government's fund, Greater Manchester has got on its own. There is global capital that we need to attract to the United Kingdom uh, to, to drive this agenda forward. And frankly, it's very hard to do when you've got the highest tax burden since, you know, for, for 70 years. 71. Want, 71 years, no, so 70, it was 70 yesterday, so it must be an anniversary <laughs> today. Happy tax day. Um, but, you know, when you've got the highest taxes for 70 years, why would people invest there? Why wouldn't you go to Australia or Abu Dhabi or the United States or Canada. This is a globally competitive market and that's why we need this freedom to cut taxes sector specific to ensure that uh, you know, that global capital will land in the UK. It doesn't, it's only interested in return. It doesn't like the British more than it likes anyone else. Global capital is interested in return. And the only way the government can drive return is by creating a lower tax environment. And if the government fails to do that, then you know, there isn't enough money in the whole of the treasury to pay for either levelling up mm. or net zero. 
So we just need a fresh approach, which is why I say we've got to break down this incremental approach. We have to be brave. We have a majority of 80. Um, so let's go on with it. Let's go to questions as well. Um, so please raise your hand. I'm going to take a few questions at a time. Um, one of my spectator colleagues will come around with a microphone, so wait for that. If you could introduce yourself, uh, say your name and who you're representing. Um, and um, speeches are allowed as long as the speech is two sentences long and ends with a question. Um, so uh, we'll start with the gentleman in the front. I, uh, my name's Andy Shaw. I, I just represent myself. Uh, I live in Wakefield, uh, um, not far from you. And um, I'm really, really excited by the devolution agenda that you mentioned there. Um, but, and I think it, it could create a huge opportunity around energy production. As you know, in Lancashire, Yorkshire, and the Northeast, we live on, the, uh, on top of the biggest shale gas reserves in the whole of Europe. We're right now, we've got a massive energy crisis around gas. I remember in 2016 when the local Labour Council banned even exploration for shale gas. Then it was banned by the government in 2019. In fact, Michael Gove a couple of weeks ago banned an exploration uh, drilling place uh, near Doncaster. So effectively, shale gas extraction is totally banned. If you followed your idea around devolution, that could be transformed. You could have say, for example, devolve energy production and extraction to Yorkshire. Uh, and you could have a local referendum on whether we should drill for, for gas in Yorkshire. You could change the uh, market mechanisms in an area like Yorkshire. You could do the same for Lancashire. You could even make it more local. So drilling and extracting could be localised, the, the licensing uh, regime. The market manipulations, the subsidies, the CFDs, the carbon taxes, all of that could also be decided locally. And where the profits go could be decided locally. So if shale gas extraction and the production, sorry, just, <laughs> just this, there could be a deal done where profits made go to reduce local council taxes. Yeah. Then you've got regional competition and, and it's a level playing field in a level market. Thanks, Andy. Uh, hands up. I saw a few more hands in the back. Yep. Um, if we could take the gentleman in the striped shirt. Thank you. My name is Ralph Pennell, myself. I wonder, in the decades of my lifetime, having seen so many strategic wands waved over the north and big subsidies made, whether we forgot the person on the ground. Somebody in Grimsby has got access to reasonable cost housing and accommodation, a local school, access to health they've navigated, and a family, grandparents, to support bringing up their children. You say to them, we want you to be upskilled and moved to Cleethorpes, which to those in the room don't know is next to Grimsby. They say no. You're across a river. Then you get somebody who say, oh, there's a good opportunity for you from London to go and work in Grimsby. Oh my God, no. Are we forgetting enough about the people dimension and the resource that we need to provide and the infrastructure for decent housing, decent education, and ability 
to have access to health. Thank you. And uh, we'll take uh, a question uh, from Adam. Uh, yeah, so Adam, Head of Partnerships at The Spectator. Uh, so I wanted to dig, uh, ask the panel to dig a bit deeper into what they think levelling up actually means as one of those sort of pesky northerners who used to be one of the people on the ground but uh, came down here. Uh, to me, it just seems like the Northern powerhouse repackaged. It's the same thing which the Tories have been banging on about uh, the entire time they've been in government, but delivered very little on. Uh, so, yeah, I, I want you guys to persuade me why it's not just more of the same. <laughs> um, thanks, Adam. So, uh, three questions there, panel. Pick and choose as you see fit. I'll come to each of you. Valentine, I'll start with you. Andy mentions that you could take devolution much further. Could we even be looking at referendums on shale gas extraction? Could we be looking at referendums on how we spend that profit, really return all of these decisions? And, and how does that weigh up with the national agenda? Uh, Ralph asks um, whether or not we're considering the actual people that we're talking about. Um, you know, can you just say to somebody, move here, move there? For very obvious reasons, a lot of people aren't going to want to uproot. Um, and Adam, I think that's a very important question about the definition of leveling up. Um, I've, I've spoken to a lot of MPs and many of them, um, actually I've yet to hear the same definition um, uh, repeated by two MPs. So I'm, I'm looking forward to that. Uh, Valentine, whichever questions you'd like to, to take there, you don't need to take them all. Right, um, I'll start with the devolution one. Um, as uh, some of you may know, devolution is, you know, at the St. Visites we're quite big advocates of the the devolution agenda, and I think it's it's a really interesting question because it it's a good example of of the way the the leveling up agenda interacts with the net zero agenda. You know, they have a lot of similarities in the fact that you know they're cross cutting issues. They're going to need coordination across different departments, but also uh, we're going to need to think better about the role of you know local um, policy um, leaders when it comes to to the net zero agenda. Um, a good example of the way. We need more devolution to, to help uh, transitioning towards a greener economy is, for instance, um, skills. So at the moment, a number of mayors in the country don't have uh, the powers to, uh, well, fund um, investment in, in, in skills. And that's a really big problem because they, they have the knowledge uh, in terms of, you know, which types of skills are needed at the local level to help people transition from uh, high-emitting jobs to, uh, to you know, low-carbon jobs. And at the moment, then they don't have the powers to do so, and that's a really, um, a really big um, issue. I'll, I'll move to the, the, the other question around, around uh, people, which I think was a, is a really, really important uh, point to, to make. Um, and that sort of bounces back to what we were discussing earlier about um, about the costs of the transition and uh, making sure that we don't leave um, people behind. I think what's, what's important here is to highlight that we're not just talking about benefits for future generations, but there are benefits that we can reap now. Um, and I think there's a bit of a risk that this net zero agenda enters a sort of culture war, and we're seeing this um, already. Um, and and I think perhaps putting it in terms of, you know, um, a, a choice between the end of the month and the end of the world isn't always a very helpful way of, of looking at this, uh, mostly because, because there are benefits that can be reaped um, now. And I, so I'm, I'm French, and I've seen uh, before the COVID crisis the, 
the yellow vest um, crisis, uh, which started, it was a huge demonstration, it started because of um, a carbon tax. Um, so there was quite a stock example of, of the level of discontent and, 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 um, and just fear around, around the transition and the fact that it would unfairly fall on, on low-income people. Um, so I think in terms of helping people um, transitioning and, and reaping the benefits of, of the net zero agenda. Retrofitting is a good example. You would save, the average person would save around £450 a month by retrofitting from, I think, EPC band D to EPC band C. That's a huge amount of, of savings and that really interacts with the, with the cost of the crisis. So all that needs to be taken into account to understand how we can help people, not just, um, not just to um, be sort of passive in, the, in this transition, but actually benefit from it. So I'll take the, the second question on have we forgotten the person on the ground. It's a really important point that not everyone is going to um, be, be willing to move and it's not, it's not all about just kind of giving people a, a chance to get a job somewhere else. And so a, a couple of, of facts about, about mobility is that w one is that there's a really big difference in how likely someone is to, to move for a job depending on, on their education level. And if, if people are, you know, graduates are much more likely to move away from their local area. A really high proportion of people who, are, who don't go to university continue to work in their local area. And I think this actually links a bit to um, the third question about what levelling up means, is that it is explicitly broader than just being about economic outcomes, and it is about public services as well. And three or four of the 12 missions are about you know, re reducing crime and improving healthy life expectancy and so on. So I, I think there's... I think there's a, a twin track thing here that it's really important that we do focus on getting better jobs in, um, in places where historically productivity has been low. And we should focus on improving productivity outside of London and the South East. That probably is mainly going to happen by getting better jobs in cities rather than placing lots of very high value jobs in every town. But that doesn't mean that you're not doing anything for people in towns. You can also focus on the way that you provide healthcare and so on, as you mentioned, to, to ensure that places are, are good places to live and that that's not kind of a, a lesser feature. And more specifically on, on that third question about what levelling up means, you, you say it, it seems pretty similar to what we've been trying to do since 2010. You could argue it seems pretty similar to government rhetoric since 1970. You know, every government for, for decades and decades has focused on, on regional inequalities. It's not the identification of the problem that is different. I think... What is potentially different, where I think where, where I think this agenda could succeed, where other has failed, is that it's not just about a new set of policies and kind of um, you know a, a few flashy announcements. If you look at what the white paper is trying to do, it's really about the way that government happens and the way that decisions are made, and that's both in the centre, ensuring that there's kind of a spatial lens that's applied to policy, that we understand the impacts of different policies in different areas, which you know, historically has just not been done well enough, and then there's also that, that devolution point as well of actually moving powers out of, of the centre and therefore allowing different policies to be combined better. It's very hard to um, ensure that you have effective skills and transport policy that's working together in say, Bradford or Leeds, um, if those decisions are being made from Whitehall, it's much easier if they're being made closer to the ground. So I think in ambition, uh, the levelling up agenda is not so different from what other governments have tried to do, but I think in recognising the importance of those kind of system reforms, I think that does kind of mark out this, this attempt as, as different and possibly more, more successful, but we'll have to wait and see on that. Jake. 
Um, okay, what should I do with it? Well, look, uh, if I lived in Grimsby, I'd happily go and work in Cleethorpes because it's got the largest fish and chip shop in the United Kingdom on its pier. Um, but actually, part of the challenge that people won't do that is around infrastructure. And if you look at spending per capita, in London, it is 15% higher than the national average. If we just spent the same on transport in the north of England as we'd spent in London over the last decade, we would have seen an additional six and a half billion pounds a year invested in northern transport infrastructure to help people form part of a mobile and dynamic labor market. That's why we and the Northern Research Group have called for something called the leveling up formula, which would be a formulaic guarantee like the Barnett formula that would equalize funding around the United Kingdom it's all well and good for the levelling up white paper to set 12 long-term ambitious missions. Easy for me to say. But if there's not a long-term funding strategy to go alongside it, it will be like the 40-40 other local growth strategies that the government has come up with helpfully over the last 40 years. It will fail. So that's why we are calling for a formula guarantee from the Treasury on funding. And look, what's the definition of levelling up, Adam? Um, well, not levelling up if it isn't coupled with a right to devolution will fail as well. The government's devolution programme, some of which I negotiated, I'm deeply proud of devolution deals in West Yorkshire and additional powers to the Tees Valley and things like that. It's, it's too slow. Um, the power balance is wrong. It's a bit like you poor northerners can have a few of, the, few of these powers. Well, actually, they're bloody ours. You know, we don't want to ask you. So that's why we're calling for a right to devolution with areas to come forward and say, actually, we'd like to control uh, our, our skills in our local area. We don't think that should be done by DFE. We shouldn't, that should be done by us. And we think there should be almost be, a, uh, to use a very European term, a subsidiarity uh, principle that goes for all devolution deals, which is the government to say why it should be done centrally rather than the other way around. And we think that right to devolution could massively accelerate the devolution uh, program. And that's why we're definitely calling for that and think it's uh, you know it's a, it's a, it's a good thing to do um, and look on on shale gas I'd be completely relaxed about that being a local decision I think there are some interesting things you could do in shale gas I'm a Lancashire MP uh, when George Osborne came out with the, uh, the this shale exploration licenses in Lancashire there was quite uh, a generous scheme that would see the wellhead revenue uh, attached to Lancashire County Council to create a sort of county Sovereign Wealth Fund, Lancashire obviously isn't a country, but that sort of idea I think is really exciting. And if I can drive along the M62 and it looks like the opening credits of Dallas with the sort of pumps nodding like donkeys, I'd be delighted if we sort of you know, farmers parading as J.R. Ewing and expensive flat caps and new tractors. I mean, if that wealth should be held and spent in Yorkshire or Lancashire, wherever it may be, I just think to win that local referendum, you'd have to demonstrate to people that it was safe. And the government didn't actually ban fracking. It reduced the seismic um, tolerances on fracking to such a low level it was, in effect, a ban. And I think that's the sort of discussion you have to have locally about what is an acceptable level of risk that you will take for this huge wealth, potentially, to flow into your community. And that would be much better done at a local level rather than by someone in London uh, making that decision for you. So I support what you say. Thank you, Jake. Claire. So I, I just wanted to reflect really on what devolution means for the feedback that we get from the communities we operate in and, and from our colleagues, our, our Yorkshire colleagues in the north. And, and 
just as a context, you know, Drax was one of many power stations built on this huge coal field in the north Sedgefield near Doncaster in the 70s. And we are the last still standing power station, still running with thousands of jobs and supply chains throughout the UK because we transformed and we invested in new technologies and we made that amazing leap that we want to do again for the UK and for the North. And we transformed that power station and kept those jobs and kept those communities. And all around us, all those other coal-fired power stations are now shut. And those communities have felt that. And what those communities say to us is, please keep innovating, please keep being you know, a dynamic, innovative, caring uh, company that wants to invest in the communities and give us hope and give us opportunity. And that, for me, is what levelling up is about, is giving opportunity and hope to the communities that we, that we operate in and where our colleagues are. And as an example, we've just done a partnership with our local Selby College uh, and we are putting a whole new curriculum of the new green skills transition economy. So we want to give you know, young folks in the area opportunity to transition and really give them some tangible help and opportunity for this new, this new technologies that could really transform the North and make us a world leading technology in green skills. So I think what we want to do is try and play our role and contribute to the levelling up and working with our partners in the North, as I said before, all of our business partners, our, our universities, our skills, etc., and really work with the communities. But what I, what I hear from our communities is we want opportunity. That's what we want. And we want good jobs, well-earned jobs that give us a future. Thank you, Claire. Um, I think we've got time for another round of questions, but please keep your comments short so we can get back to the panel. Um, can we have the gentleman in the glasses over here? Oh, he got he, he got him. <laughs> Thank you. Um, my name is Lucas Davison. I'm from ABZ. Um, I'd like to bring the attention to Bex at Drax, if that's okay. Um, in December, 53 MPs wrote to the Secretary of State, Kwasi Kwarteng, uh, with evidence to suggest that the fuel, the wood pellets burnt at Drax, are not carbon neutral. Uh, they said burning 25 million trees a year at Drax is a scandal. Uh, six months later, Kwasi Kwarteng has not made any attempts to meet with these MPs. Uh, two weeks ago, in the Daily Telegraph on the front page, uh, they revealed that under the UK's net zero targets for carbon remo removals under BEX, uh, we would be burning 120 million trees a year by 2050. Um, I'd just like to ask, uh, is the Daily Telegraph stupid or are the 53 MPs stupid? Uh, hands up. Just a friendly reminder that women can ask questions too. Can we? <laughs> can, yes, great. Um, gentleman in the blue suit here, and then the woman in the blue suit in the front. Thank you. My name is Roland G. I was a founder member of the advisory board of the University Centre Shrewsbury, which is attached to the University of Chester. Uh, when we set up, our objective was to create degree courses for people to work in local industries in the area of Shropshire. Unfortunately, as time went by, the University of Chester uh, made us produce degrees such as media studies and theatrical events and so on and so on. I think the government has a real role to play here in 
insisting that universities and of course schools before create not only degree courses but also vocational courses which by the way the University of Chester vetoed so that places new university campuses like Shrewsbury can produce the talent that industry that this country needs even if some of those jobs of those degree courses were subsubsidized by government or industry thanks and what was your name Roland, Roland. G thank you Roland um, and the lady in the front here, please. Thanks. Uh, Angela Jackson. I'm a solicitor, but in the field of film and media. And I was interested to hear what uh, Jake Berry said about uh, cutting corporation tax sector by sector, and what Valentine said about the differences between the uh, the urban and the rural, perhaps they don't realise how different they are in, in, in achieving carbon um, net zero. And I just wondered, for those um, cutting taxes sector by sector, could any more incentives be built in there that, say, possibly would encourage cooperation between urban and rural, like a, like a kind of twinning, you know, in the 70s, English towns would twin with an overseas town. Maybe now it's time for a north-south Twinning, could that help? Is that too radical? Thank you so much. So we have a question from Lucas, I think for Claire, about Drax's carbon emissions. We have a question from Roland about what role the government can play, and also ideally what the role the private sector can play in more vocational training. And um, a question from Angela uh, for, for the panel to expand on that idea, that idea of, of corporation tax, and Jake in particular. You know, you said sector by sector, but why not just hand the whole thing to okay. devolved areas and say you set your corporation tax for the film industry or for, for, for green energy? So, uh, Claire, we'll start with you. Yeah, sure. So, um, I think there's a lot of misunderstanding and misinformation about biomass. We don't burn trees. We don't burn trees. And there is a lot of science that proves that. I think um, the science that I would point to is the IPCC and the Climate Change Committee where they say biomass is an integral part of reducing carbon emissions. And that is a world leading uh, science organization that takes uh, academic research from all over the world. Uh, and I would, I, would, I would follow the science on that. But I, I, I think there is misinformation that we burn whole trees, we don't. We, do, we take away the, the thinnings, which are very important for forest management, for uh, reducing fires, uh, and we take sawdust. So, and these are compacted into pellets. So we are not burning whole trees. And um, I just wanted to make that, that very clear. But I would point you to the science of people much more elevated uh, than me, the Climate Change Committee, and the IPCC. Follow the science. Jake. Well, I'm going to pick up on Roland's answer, and actually uh, the previous question was the Telegraph wrong, well it, it turns out they may have been wrong in this, in this regard, or someone certainly was. Uh, the Telegraph, I think yesterday, on their online version, published a, an article, the title of which was The Most Boring Degrees That Could Help You Make Money, and it listed degrees all terribly boring, like engineering, which I think, by the way, is absolutely fascinating, um, and sort of showed what salary you would earn. Uh, three years after leaving university, and that takes me back to this issue we have, with this sort of this sort of snobbery around vocational skills and vocational degrees. I think the government does have a role to play here. 
I think we should be championing this dual track education system. This is not Terra Nova. Uh, this is a well-trodden path uh, by countries across Europe. In fact, Germany as part of their development goals when they team up with less developed countries actually exports to those countries its twin track education system, which it refers to as its secret weapon in being a manufacturing superpower. What is the role of government in that? The role of government is to do two things. First of all, I think make that long-term ambition for 50% of all young people to do a high-level vocational skill, whether at university or whether at college, because um, Sheffield Hallam University is absolutely the leader in degree-level apprenticeships. Um, that's fantastic. And also, to some extent, pivot some funding towards that to try and encourage educational providers to follow that lead and there is of course the apprenticeship levy which is paid by business not government actually which is you know we, we should be looking to point at uh, ensuring that 50 percent of young people do those higher level vocational qualifications and i think the reason we don't have a twin tracked education system is the people who make the decisions about our education system have all been to um you know russell group or Oxford and Cambridge to do humanities and arts subjects. I don't think they just seem to value quite as much as I would as an MP who represents a manufacturing area, those, those really important vocational skills. And um, I, I hope that's, I can't remember what the last question was. It was about your corporation tax idea. Oh yes, on the corporation tax. Um, uh, we think one of the best ways of driving leveling up is to actually look at some element of displacement um, we think the best approach to do that on a sector basis. So we heard earlier, didn't we, how Nissan has its R&D development, those high-value jobs in the southwest. Um, I don't want to take anything away from the southwest, but if the northeast was given the power to pursue its already globally significant cluster in the automotive industry, as the Midlands has as well, you may see quite a lot of those jobs displaced not just from other areas of the United Kingdom, but other areas of the European Union. And when, right. the, uh, dis when the subject of variation corporation tax was discussed around devolved nations getting it, there's a brilliant quote from the Treasury which says, we think this would, well in, you know, this would create unwelcome tax competition between areas of the United Kingdom and would drive taxes down. Well, you know, that's music to my ears. I'm a conservative. I, I want to drive t tax down. I want to increase competition. So that's why we think it's a, a really important thing for the government to explore. And it's not hugely dissimilar from the creation of free ports, but it's just saying to local areas, you could have a free port anywhere um, if you have the proper devolved mechanism in place to make sure that there's accountability, which we talked a lot about devolution. Um, one of the other things we're really pushing for is a much more robust um, accountability framework for mayors. Uh, the government can't devolve and forget he needs to make sure that we are delivering services to people in the local area. Thanks, Jake. Tom? Yeah, so on um, university and vocational courses, I mean, I think there's a danger that we go too far here. No doubt it's the case that um, you know, the UK's vocational education system has, has not been good enough and that has held us back and has held back our productivity. I don't think we should talk down universities and university education too much. You know, People who go to university in general do, do earn more, do tend to be more productive. There, there is variation across degrees, no doubt. And, um, but but not, that's because that's yeah. the only thing we have to compare it to at the moment. Sure, no, and, 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 and the evidence shows that those vocational degrees that we do have, which haven't been expanded enough, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not completely disagreeing with you at all. I'm just saying that I, I wouldn't throw, throw the baby out with the bathwater, if you like, and suddenly say that vocational education would be the right track for 
everyone. However, I do think that expanding vocational education is really important. And to the point made in the question, linking that to the demand for skills in local areas. And um, there's, there's sort of early developments of that in, in the white paper of the local skills improvement plans. And I think there could be much more kind of joining up between local businesses, local leaders and universities to make sure that the types of courses that are offered in areas are the ones that are going to contribute to businesses in that area. And then just quickly to say on, on cutting corporation tax and kind of differences area by area, I suppose I'd emphasise that there are, there are other ways that you can, that businesses make location decisions. It's not just about tax and I think skills, also in the right set of skills is really important as well and we shouldn't just focus on kind of tax intensive is the only thing that, that drives people everywhere. You know, not every business locates in Ireland, even though it has a much lower corporation tax, albeit there are some industries that, that do tend to be driven there. And um, Jake li likes the idea of um, much lower taxes and tax competition. I do worry a bit about kind of the, the, the incentives and the competition between areas, but, but that, that's a why? Happy to, to have, have why, why is it a bad why, thing? Why, why is it a bad thing? Well, taxes pay for things as well, right? And you, you want to have it, and you, you don't want taxes to be too high, but you also don't want areas necessarily to be competing against each other and saying, well, this business that actually has better to, access to a better skills base over here, come locate with us and we'll just give you a 5% corporation tax over here. I, I don't think that's an efficient way to design tax. I think there are, there are better policy levers than lower taxes to attract businesses to an area. Valentine. So I'll take the question about uh, the um, urban versus uh, rural. So um, we looked at data, uh, carbon emissions data at the, that's available at the local uh, authority level. Um, and I should say, hey, this is production-based data, so it's not consumption-based emissions. Uh, that's a sort of whole new conversation about how to decarbonize um, experts in particular. But when you just look at uh, production-based emissions, um, in cities, I think at the top of my head, uh, the carbon emission for the average person living in a city is about four tonnes a year. Uh, and for someone living outside a city, it's around six tonnes a year. Um, so there's a few reasons for this. The first is uh, pretty obviously that... Um, industrial activity tends to locate outside cities, so that obviously explains why uh, emissions are lower within cities. But even, even when you look at uh, transport and housing, um, emissions per head are lower in cities. Um, and that comes back to the points I made earlier, which is that you know, in cities it's much, earlier that to, it's much easier to, um, to leave the car behind uh, because um, it's much easier to use public transport, partly because Density means that um, it's, it's more viable for public transport operators to run routes uh, within cities. Um, and on the housing front, um, denser housing tends to be much more energy, um, energy efficient. So what that means is that we'll, you know, we'll need more cities and not less cities uh, if we want to successfully transition to, to net zero. Um, and that was quite interesting in the past two years in the sort of whole COVID conversation around people leaving cities um, and, and what that may mean for, uh, for their future carbon, carbon footprint. Um, so... So we'll need cities to drive the transition to, um, to net zero. And I think in terms of the broader conversation about the UK as a whole reaching net zero by 2050, I think it means that we should expect cities to lead the transition um, and to give more slack to rural areas where transitioning will be um, much, more, uh, much more difficult. 
Thank you so much. So uh, we're going to uh, go back out into the hall where there's going to be more tea and coffee and we can continue this conversation. I want to say a huge thank you to our audience today for your fantastic questions and for coming to Westminster. A big thank you to Drax for making this panel possible. Yes. And, and if you'll... If you'll join me again in applause for the biggest thank you to Valentine, Tom, Jake, and Claire for their wonderful insights. Thank you, Kate. Thank you. That's it from us. For more information on our live events, head to events.spectator.co.uk, where we bring together columnists, politicians, and provocateurs to discuss the most pertinent issues of the day.